because in culinary school, yes, you learn um, techniques and you learn the basics of cooking, but it's really until you work in a kitchen and a really hectic kitchen where that you truly appreciate how your food is cooked and learn how to mm. cook in a kitchen, right? Uh, rather than cook in a very controlled environment where all the ingredients are given to you every day and nothing bad ever happens. Um, but mm -hmm. in an actual kitchen, you know, if you mess up something, uh, you just run out of ingredients and you, you have to salvage it somehow, right? Hey everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Curious. In the day, I work a normal job as a doctor. But in my spare time, I've challenged myself to interview other people with interesting career paths, hobbies or side projects. The goal is to share their stories and to draw inspiration and wisdom for the rest of us. This is the Alternative CV Podcast. Hey listeners, welcome to episode 7 of the Alternative CV Podcast, the podcast about people who have done unconventional things as side projects or maybe as their full-time careers. So we pick up this theme again by speaking to Ijun, Instagram at Ijunjun, that's Y-I-J-U-N-J-U-N-N, -N -N, is a chemical engineer turned chef, food writer and podcaster. At 23, right after graduating from Cambridge, he took a plunge and dived headfirst into the world of food, signing up for culinary school in London and Paris, working at the farm-to-table restaurant Blue Hill at Stone Barns in New York, which is a three Michelin-star restaurant, and right now he's running his own food blog and podcast, Breaking Bread. His Saver-nominated blog, Jun and Tonic, that's J-U-N-N-T-O-N-I-C, explores the quirky side of Asian food and cooking. His articles on food have also been featured on Food52 and Taste. In this episode, I speak to Yi Jun about his journey to become a food blogger. We don't really get into the food blogging and podcasting bit yet, and more of that can be found in part two of my conversation, which will be released next week. But we mainly chat about Yi Jun's experiences in culinary school and subsequently whilst interning in a three Michelin star restaurant, which is Blue Hill. This episode might not be packed full of take-home and apply straightaway learning points, but nonetheless, it was still a very very fun conversation and it was good insight into the life of a chef especially for someone who loves food but has never ventured behind the counter spoiler alert the life of a chef is far harder than i ever imagined so think of 13 hour days on your feet all the time and work on the weekends but it is a very interesting and very different world so i hope you enjoy my conversation with ijun All right, Ijun, welcome to the show. Hello. So the last time we met, I think you had just graduated of Cambridge from Cambridge with a chemical engineering de degree. Mm -hmm. And then you decided to go and to culinary school in Paris. And then after that, you worked in the top restaurant. And now, can you describe what you do now? So right now, I am a food writer. Uh, I would say I'm a food writer and food podcaster almost but i also have like a my own personal blog on the side where i post about recipes but primarily food writer and podcaster yeah food writer and podcaster mm -hmm. what a great job title <laughs> so if we go back to when you were in um at the end of cambridge when, when did you start making plans to go to culinary school um, and how did that come about i think it's quite a roundabout journey really so you know how a, a lot of people when they go into food they will say like oh i've been in love with food all my life and you know i've been cooking since young helping out my mom in the kitchen but that wasn't really a case for me so for me it was more of i i really only got into cooking at cambridge and yeah it was <laughs> you probably know this person so and, yeah, Andrew I, Tom, Andrew, yeah, right? Andrew yeah. Tom, I guess he influenced me quite a bit. So he's he was my roommate for two years in in uh, Cambridge, and basically he was a massive foodie, right? And I wasn't yeah. so much of a foodie slash eater before that. Like I loved food, but I didn't really care so much about going to the specifics of how to cook certain things and what makes certain things taste good. And he was more into that. So living together with him for two years, it kind of influenced me i guess in in a good way and slowly through 
cooking together. And you came to uh, some of the sessions where we we cooked food yeah. for people, and then you guys just came over, right? It was uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and uh, good times, good times. <laughs> and so yeah, from there um, towards the last year of my studies, because as a chemical engineer, a lot of people go into either oil and gas or pharmaceuticals or a lot of them go into consulting as well. Um, and mm-hmm. to be to be fair, a lot of the ones that go into consulting was, was because it's quite a, a more like a new age job, new age career almost. And mm-hmm. the money is good. The career prospects is pretty good as well. So then when towards the end of my uh, fourth year, I was also looking into consulting. So mm-hmm. I went and applied to a few places, uh, did some interviews and didn't really like the whole process really. So it was uh, going to all these sessions where you have to network with people and put forward your best self, uh, which felt a bit much for me. Um, and for me personally, I'm I'm quite the introvert, so this was especially hard as well to to say like, oh, I am, uh, you know, top of my class, or I'm really good at a, a, B, and C. I can solve problems for you. I can be your best employee. It just didn't fit into my personality really. I I always like yeah. to be super upfront with people, right? So after doing like three, four interviews, it wasn't a lot to be to be fair. Um, I kind of lost the drive for going into uh, consulting and kind of looked at what other options I had. And okay. it was then, yeah, it was then that I thought thought of uh, going to culinary school. It was more like a plan B really. So then I signed it up for nine months, six months in London actually, and three in Paris. Mm. But it's quite a different kind of plan B as in it's not one that automatically jumps to mind. So mm-hmm. how did that, happen yeah so (laughs) i think it was a plan b uh not so far as uh you know if i do this i'm gonna go into the food industry forever right for the rest of my life it was more like to delay uh my decision for what i want to do next in life because it was only nine months of learning how to cook learning traditional french techniques i guess and so nine months didn't seem uh, like a, a super long time to to delay uh, my life decision back then, and I just thought it was a pretty good investment in skills. Yeah. 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 Okay. So so it's kind of like you stumbled into the food industry. In Almost. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Right. So back then, did you put much thought into which kind of program you were going to, um, or you know how how did you choose? program you, you you joined wait can you can you say that again i didn't quite catch that did you did you put much thought into what which program you were going into um how did you choose it mm, uh so in terms of culinary school uh la cordon bleu lcb is the most uh i guess prominent one uh worldwide so yeah and it was especially popular in uh, europe and london and paris right uh so that was the I, I didn't really consider many other uh choices really i just went to and and looked at their course and how it was like and just picked the grand diplôme which is a uh, grand diplôme as the french say it um and yep. chose like the patisserie course with the uh, cuisine course, which is like sweet and savory, basically, it gives you like best of both worlds. Mm. Okay, so what what is Grand Diplôme? Can you explain it for the listeners? Mm, so Grand Diplôme, it's uh, a culinary diploma, I guess. Um, it sounds really grand, but really, it's only nine months of training, and your time is split between doing patisserie, uh, sweets, and uh, like croissants and breads, and basically all the French desserts. And the other side of the course is the cuisine is where you you do most of the hot kitchen work. So things mm-hmm. like really traditional French dishes like coq au vin or, yep. mm, or uh, there's like bouillabaisse and you get pretty, I guess, a wholesome uh, culinary experience. Mm. 
Okay. Okay. And how do you, is it, is it competitive to apply? And, you know, did, did you have to like put in a CV resume kind of thing? Yeah. Show it, your recipes and dishes? Nah, not really. You just have to, so, so the course, it kind of caters for beginners, for, for people who are basically just interested in cooking, right? Which was me at that time. So it was split into three sections. There was like a beginner, intermediate and advanced, I think. And basically, yeah. um, you could take, uh, either just a three month section or six or nine months, you could split the course however you want, basically, um, depending on your, your interests. So then some people just stayed for three months, but I did the whole nine months. Um, I see. Yeah. So you progressed on to the intermediate and then to the advanced techniques. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and in terms of, uh, the application process, it wasn't really that hard because, um, yeah, you don't really need any prior experience, uh, all you really need is an enthusiasm, I guess, for cooking. And also, it, it was a bit costly, so you had to pay also because they are like a profit-making uh, business, right? I see. Right. Okay. Okay. But And, and it was a split between London and Paris? Yeah. So I did uh, six months in London and three in Paris. It was, yeah, it was like a, it was more like a visa issue because I couldn't stay in uh, London for more than six months after I graduated from Cambridge. Um, I see. Yeah, weird laws. But then it was also pretty good because I was like, oh, uh, it'll be good to see how the Parisians do it, right? How the French do it. Yeah. And where, because uh, Le Colombe came from Paris itself and that's where it became super popular with like Julia Child and all her weird uh, inventions and cooking shows. Yeah, which yeah. got... Le Cordon Bleu really famous as well. So I just thought it was fun to spend three months in Paris. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah, amazing. So that means that you did the advanced bit in Paris and you were mm -hmm. taught that there. Okay, right. Okay. Mm. So what, what is culinary school like? Like what's your day-to-day -day kind of schedule? And do you have like assignments or, or like exams? And <laughs> Oh my God, it was so long ago. Uh, yeah, so I think... Day to day, you, you had like a schedule of practicals that you had to go to. Um, so the, the classes are really split into uh, a demo and then a practical. So yeah. the demo is where the chef, uh, you basically sit in like a hall and there's a chef in front of you and he's cooking the dish of the day, say. Uh, yeah. And basically it lasts for an hour and a half, two hours sometimes um, of just the chef cooking and telling you, uh, giving you tips on how to best replicate the dish. So a lot of it is replication, right? So um, yes. after that, you will go into your practical and basically try to recreate what you've been taught at the demo. Mm. See, so really kind of like master chef like where they a bit, gather a bit, except without the mystery boxes now <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah so it's all okay. pretty quite it's all quite planned and yeah some of the teachers especially in uh london they were really really good i was surprised like the paris school wasn't as uh the, the teachers were but the, the crop of teachers there weren't as uh good as the london ones but apparently they rotate around quite a lot so then i see uh, it's really uh, luck of the draw, really. Hmm. What makes them a good teacher? I think they just really, they could really explain things really well and give you actual inside knowledge onto the cooking process because a I lot see, of them I, have, been okay. work, have, have worked in restaurants or hotels previously. So they have mm -hmm. a lot of industry experience. And there's also, they also have like a passion to educate, right? Mm. Uh, on top of a passion for cooking, which I think is really important because as a teacher chef, right, the education part is really, really important. And the ones in Paris, they, although yes, they really, really liked cooking, you could tell, but mm -hmm. the, um, you, they didn't feel as uh, diligent about how they would go about teaching people. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that it's all about kind of first print, the first principles approach to cooking and and, and um, understanding how you put flavors together or techniques and things like that. Because mm. I can see that as well in your blog post, which I suppose we'll come on to later. The, the kind of <laughs> teaching, the teaching element of it as well. Because whenever you write a recipe, is also a, a kind of a form of teaching. Mm. And um, I really enjoy the way you 
it's almost a, it has a kind of chemical engineer feel to it. The way you, for example, you explain how salt draws out water from uh, the sourrow skin and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, it's just, to be fair, I, I, I don't know why I've been trying to shift away from that a bit. But really, <laughs> okay, yeah, we can we can talk about that later. But yeah, there's been a bit of a shift in the approach, basically. Mm. Okay, but yeah, okay. I, I definitely That's... started off with more of like the scientific uh, approach, uh, approach because that was yeah. what I was um, trained to do right, in my in my degree, writing, uh, yeah. doing experiments in the lab, and writing reports. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so do they mostly teach you? Techniques, recipes, flavor combinations. Like what? What do they actually teach you? Uh, so basically, they it's a combination of technique and flavors. So the flavors are very classic French. So basically, it was centered around uh, each practical, each demo will be centered around a dish. But then it gets progressively mm-hmm. harder, right? So at the start, they'll teach you uh, the basic, the five uh, mother sources of French cuisine. Um, yeah. And then they'll t- teach you like how to Sorry make vinaigrettes. Oh. What's the what's the five mother sources? Ah, I knew you were going to put me on the spot. It's been so long, and I haven't been cooking <laughs> traditional French food in so long. But let let me try, let me try. So there's a bechamel sauce, which is basically um, butter and flour that you make into a roux uh, overheat, and then you just pour milk in, and it gets really thick and rich and buttery. Uh, the French is all about the butter, right? So that's the key one. And then there's also a uh, I think of velouté, which is basically you put, mm-hmm. it's like a, a bechamel, but then you put stock instead of uh, milk in it. So it gets mm-hmm. really wheat rich and uh, almost like a meaty sauce. And then mm-hmm. there is, uh, is it Holland, Hollandaise? Uh, is yeah, Hollandaise yeah, one I of the so. five? It's either Hollandaise or, so. or, or Bianese is one of the five. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> I can't think of the two. Uh, there's, I think there's one tomato-based one, and I, I forgot that I, I'm, I'm an embarrassment to to LCV, but it's been a while, so yeah. Okay, but- never mind. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's, coming back coming back to what you were saying, uh, yeah. So you were saying that they teach you start with the five basic sources, and then they yes, and, and move then, on. Yeah, and then you uh, learn, I guess, uh, basic vinaigrettes and how oil and uh, vinegar, how to keep them bound together. And, you know, if you leave it for too long, they'll split and then they'll teach you a bit of the science behind it as well. But it's mm-hmm. quite quite basic science, really. Um, and then after that, you move on to uh, cooking vegetables, then cooking um, fish uh, and also like filleting fish. And then you go into chicken and how to butcher chicken, um, how to cook it. And then you move on to the red meats like uh, beef and lamb. Yeah. And then basically they, they give you a, let's say for like a, a, a chicken class, right? They'll give you uh, a recipe for a roast chicken with like a sauce that you've done before um, mm-hmm. just to refresh your memory almost. And then like some roasted vegetables on the side, right? So then the main focus is the chicken and how you butcher it. And at the demo, they'll show you exactly how to do that. There's like a camera on top of the chef and you can see directly uh He's right in front of you, so you can see um, the uh, what do you call it? Like a, the head-on view of him doing it as well uh, on top of yeah. the the overhead camera. So that that was really helpful. And I see. Yeah, so you learned the process from start to finish, butcher, cooking, uh, plating. Mm. Oh, okay, right. So it's hard to imagine, but that means that at the end of nine months, you come out of it like a proper chef like you can do anything kind of superpower like uh kind of super chef (laughs) nah i wouldn't say that because a lot of it is traditional french techniques right and um most of the restaurants right now are moving towards a more new age uh especially with the influence of especially when you go to the fine dining scene a lot of the more uh more renowned restaurants right now they're doing more molecular stuff maybe or going back to a lot of the farm to table movement mm. yep yeah what do you mean by molecular stuff uh so there's i think it was from it started from el, el bouilly probably which is mm-hmm. a famous restaurant in, uh that closed down about a decade ago and basically mm-hmm. they were the hub of um 
molecular gastronomy, which is a term thrown around a lot uh, in the in the past uh, 10 years, but slowly you've been seeing it decline a bit. But basically, it has to do with uh, applying science to cooking right? and making things, um, uh, t- turning ingredients into um, foams and bubbles and basically things that you, you wouldn't expect, right? Mm. And there are a lot of yeah. equipment that they use that really belong, that you think belong more in a science lab than a kitchen. Mm. Mm. Yeah, uh, it sounds as though that's like very chemical engineering. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a, a bit, I guess. So when I, when I see people doing anything molecular, I the chemical engineering side of me definitely like perks up and I try and understand what is going on behind it. But for me personally, I don't do much molecular Molecular's, cooking okay. just because, yeah. <laughs> and this, this might be an insult to a lot of people, but I, but I feel like uh, it's been taken to a point where it's almost become like a gimmick, you know, where mm-hmm. you take an ingredient and turn it into something that it's not um, just for the mm-hmm. sake of, doing that right um like demonstrated technique yeah like there's one restaurant in uh hong kong i think um they make uh xiao long bao but yes in the form of like a a bubble that basically when you bite on it it just bursts open and all the flavors of the xiao long bao will will linger in your mouth right which is honestly it isn't that different from a regular xiao long bao right which is you yes. you bite on it and the the soup comes out and then you go onto the meat. So they just do it for it feels a bit gimmicky to be honest. So there, there's this one one example of a of a uh, molecular gastronomy <laughs> gimmick, I guess. But they've been quite successful this restaurant. So I guess there's a there's a market demand for that as well. So mm. but for me personally, I, I, I prefer sticking to the ingredients itself and keeping things pretty um, fresh and true to the uh, what, what you're cooking with, right? Which is why I went over to um, Blue Hill, uh, which is a farm-to-table restaurant after my culinary course in, in Paris. Mm. I th- Yeah, great. I think this is a perfect time to talk about Blue Hill. So <laughs> uh, from what I know about Blue Hill, it's a, it's a top 50 restaurant in the world. It's based in New York. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And... I had a look at their website and it's a it's quite eye-watering 278 US dollars per person without beverages to eat there. <laughs> and they say something about making up menus on the fly. Can can you explain what that means? Oh yes. Okay, so that's a big part of uh Blue Hill. So basically I um okay, I, I just have to disclaim I was staging at Blue Hill for six months. So staging basically means working uh it's like an internship basically and it's like working for free almost, but they provided me with accommodation and food. Um, but I, okay. I, I don't get paid a salary, right? So it's, it's working, okay. but it's also not like a full-time em- employee. Mm. I see. Yeah, so I was so there. It literally is an internship. Okay. Yeah, 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 it is kind of like an internship. So I was there for six months and basically Blue Hill is a restaurant that really promotes the, uh, it's at the forefront of the farm to table movement, basically. A lot of people credit uh, Chef Dan, Dan Barber, for mm-hmm. um, the rise of the farm-to-table movement in the States, especially. Uh, so he basically tries to advocate for um, what he calls the third plate. And he wrote a whole book about it, basically, which was what got me interested in his restaurant in the first place. So the book, yep. it talked about how um, in the past, we used to, so in the past, it used to be the first plate uh, which is very, very meat heavy. Um, basically mm-hmm. just, just a uh, chunks of meat and we ate meat all the time. And then we moved on to, uh, the second plate, which is more sure we had vegetables as a side to the meat, uh, but the mm-hmm. meat still played a starring role in most of the, most of our meals. Right. Yep. But he wants, um, he sees our food industry moving onto a third plate and he thinks that's the most sustainable way uh, to push our food future forward. Um, And basically the third plate is more focusing on veggies. So the vegetables will be the star of your meal with the meat playing a side role. 
Ah, mm. uh, that's really interesting. Okay, yeah. so yeah, so, so it does dovetail with the whole veganism and like vegetarian movement, mm, a bit but, sustainable. Yeah, but a lot as a lot of people are finding it hard to cut out meat entirely, right? So the way he uses meat in his restaurant is uh, basically uh, using it in in sauces, in garnishes. Um, mm-hmm. So let's say um, he presents you with like a, a roasted beet, right, or a carrot that's basically cooked the way a steak would be cooked at a regular steakhouse. Um, Basically, you cook it with butter and like keep basting it and giving it like a caramelized outside, but inside it's still super tender and soft. And then the sauce that goes with it is a a meat-based sauce. So maybe from like uh, a veal uh, veal sauce that has been uh, brewed over several days. Mm. So it lends a really rich taste to that, but still the focus is... uh, on the vegetable itself so yeah that that's the whole concept of his restaurant but yeah you were saying the sorry this is a a long aside but you were talking about the uh um the way they they serve you the the menu right yes Mm. so the way um they structured their menu is there's is basically, uh, basically depends on the individual guest that comes in. So what happens is when you go into the restaurant, uh, there will be a server that comes to your table, the front of our staff, and they'll basically have a chat with you to find out what are your likes and dislikes. Is there anything that you're allergic to? Um, are you adventurous uh, or are you more, you know, you like to stick to the safer meats, uh, safer vegetables. And if uh, you're a first time visitor or second time, or you've been there many, many times and you're super regular. So depending on your uh, traits, basically, and, and these traits get printed out on a ticket that gets sent to the kitchen. And basically okay. when it comes out in the kitchen, then they'll write the menu on the spot together with the chef and decide like what to serve uh these guests, right? I see. Mm-hmm. So do you have like, for example, a repertoire of like 50 dishes that you didn't pick? Yeah. Oh, I, this would go well. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So there are, yeah, I would say there are about 50, 40, 50 odd dishes that you might have uh, in a meal. But then out of the 40, 50, the uh, front of house staff will pick about like 15, 20 dishes for you. Mm. I see. And so you don't, um, you can't like batch cook anything. It's all like tailored, like, no. You, know, you, you don't have, have lots of duck breast roasting in the oven at the same time, nah, for example. Nah, so it really depends on who comes in and, and it's on the spot, right? It's like only when you come in, then we decide the menu. So, you know, everything, it's pretty much cooked from scratch, fresh every day. Mm. I see. Okay. Do you know the name of the book, The Third Plate? Yeah, book? yeah. It's called The Third Plate. Ah, right. Okay. And can you explain a bit more about what the farm to table movement is? Right. So, (laughs) uh, the farm to table movement is, um, I'm I'm sure a lot of you have heard of it and it's kind of in line with the nose to tail movement or so. So farm farm to table really, um, basically chefs are trying to get produce from the farm and and put a a bigger focus on the ingredient themselves, right? Because a lot of the times uh, over the past 50 to 100 years, I would say, uh, the US especially has moved on to a more um, factory farming sort of method for for, uh, farming meats, basically, especially uh, cows and beef and chicken. Um, So basically the cows are kept in like a pretty much a tight pen um, and not really given much free room to to roam around and live as they uh, basically they, they don't really have a good life right so the farm to table movement is trying to to break that that cycle and trying to put more focus on how we raise certain animals how we raise uh, crops vegetables even in the farm mm-hmm. um, so I guess the organic movement ties in a bit to that as well. Uh, I see. And basically just trying to to make people think more about where their food is coming from. Mm. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a sustainability and social responsibility on an individual mm. level almost. Yeah. Okay. Right. So did you just apply that straight out or did you apply to many places? Uh, I mean, I, I knew you were interested in in the work that, that the chef, was it his name was Dan? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dan yeah. Barber. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. So you, it was basically the only place that 
I applied to, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and on during my, I think it was when I was in Paris, I just shot them an email uh, and they just replied and we did like a Skype interview just to find out like my motivations behind going there to work, right? Because they had to uh, go through the whole visa process because I'm not from the US. Uh, and so yeah. for them to do that, it's like an extra step for them uh, because a lot of, although they had like quite a few interns there, most of them were from the US. So it was a lot easier for them. Uh, I see. But for me, because I was in studying in uh, UK and then Paris, it was a bit more complicated, but that was the only place that I applied to. And yeah, fortunately, they took me in. <laughs> so it sounds, it sounds quite easy to apply for an internship. Mm, so there is, is uh, yeah, there is a uh, big culture around staging, basically working for free at all these uh, fine dining top 50 restaurants, Michelin, three-star Michelin restaurants. And okay. um, the culture, uh, a lot of people say it's not, not that great really. So because people don't really get uh, a salary, a monthly salary, right? And the hours are really long. We had to work from, uh, at Blue Hill, it was started work at 11 and we ended work at like 1, 2 a.m. in the morning. And so wow. it was really long hours. And basically, you also lose your weekends. Your weekends are Monday, Tuesday. Uh, so it's just at odds with the rest of the wo- rest of the world, really, any other industry. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so okay. people are really saying that, uh, you know, you should at, at least pay them like a stipend or a small amount of money for them to at least uh, survive, you know? It sounds as though... You know, it's quite believable that they that they don't pay you anything because they do work you very hard, mm-hmm. and also it seems, but it, it does seem that this is quite this whole starting process is quite ingrained into the culture of the food industry. Mm-hmm. That you know, it's a rite of passage for everyone almost. Would yeah. you say so? Yeah, I think it is, but it's slowly, slowly the industry has been changing. So, I think the main motivation behind people doing it is because you know they want this experience at. Uh, this really renowned restaurant that they they would never be able to apply to and get a full-time position in so why not just work for free for like two three months and then you can say that you can write it in your it's an extra line in your cv um and Mm -hmm. then you can use that to go in and do bigger things because people have uh people are like oh this guy has worked at noma say this guy has worked at favican and oh, maybe we should hire him. So there's a, it kind of boosts your CV, I guess. People do it for, for that purpose. Mm. I see. So I'd like to talk a bit more about the kind of career progression as a chef. Do people tend to do like start, do they intern at multiple places? Mm. So start? usually, um, I think there are, obviously there are multiple levels to, to it, right? And it really depends on where you want to end up. So some people, uh, your average run-of-the-mill restaurant, mom-and-pop diners, even a lot of people that work there are just in it for to for for living, right? Whereas in yeah. people who go into the fine dining uh, world, um, a lot of the chefs are you can see that they are really really interested in the the, the food itself, and they want to cook better food, and they might uh, want to end up owning a restaurant someday, opening their own place. So yeah. to if that is your end goal, to open your own restaurant, especially a fine dining restaurant, um, it, a lot of people will go to different um, places, usually all across the world, to gain experience and learn different techniques, basically from all these renowned chefs. Um, and then incorporate that into whatever restaurant uh, you come up with in the future, uh, and it's kind of like a collection of all your experiences that's condensed into your future restaurant, right? So a lot of people go through the, the staging process as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then they yeah. might work full-time uh, at like a couple of places for a few years and then go on to open their own place. Mm. I see. Okay. So can you explain like the ranks in a in a mm. restaurant? Because it seems like that it's quite hierarchical in, in some ways. Yes. So I think uh, the... Most of our kitchens today, they still rely on the uh, French brigade, basically the French kitchen brigade. The, there's a system in place. So it starts off with your, your head chef. Um, and sometimes your head chef might be like a, it can be like a chef owner as well. 
but then yeah, okay. at, at Blue Hill, uh, because Chef Dan, he's quite well-renowned. So he goes off and does a lot of events, uh, goes out of the country sometimes. So then there is a separate head chef at, at the restaurant. Okay. Mm. So then under that, there, there are uh, sous chefs. There might be one, there might be a few. Uh, basically, they are the uh, assistant to this head chef, right? Uh, overseeing how the whole kitchen runs. And under that, there, uh, there are your chef de parties, which is your... Basically, the kitchen is split into different sections. Um, and yeah. the CDP, the chef de party, is in charge of each section each line and in the line there might be two three other chefs that are under them uh which are more junior chefs i guess mm. i see okay so this is just from my limited experience you know if you if one were to say go into a fine dining restaurant and sit down at the at the kitchen counter looking into the kitchen then you see different people working at different stations so those mm -hmm. are chef de parties which is, is that right Mm, no, so the chef de party is the the head of each station. So, station, okay. Yeah, so so there might be two or three people or more working at the station, and the chef de party is the one overseeing all of them, and they sort of report to the sous chefs and the head chefs. Okay, so what mm. did the sous chefs and the head chefs do? Did you just like wander around tasting sauces or? Yeah, so so sometimes they yeah. might they might help out, and a lot of the uh, at least in Blue Hill, um, they were mainly there for quality control, really, and making sure you're doing the right thing and helping you out if you have some difficulties preparing certain dishes, or they might be testing out new recipes, new dishes to to serve. Mm. Mm -hmm. so, so they just kind of float around and uh, yeah, yeah, make sure that. Okay. Mm. And usually a lot of kitchens are shorthanded. So a lot of the sous chefs end up doing the work of uh, the chef de party or, or a, a, taking over a station entirely. Mm. I see. Because actually when you, you know, say if you, again, going back to taking a seat at the kitchen counter and looking into the kitchen, it doesn't seem to be that many people. It doesn't really, it doesn't even seem that you have like the underlings and then the chef de party and then the sous chef and the head chef. It just doesn't, I don't see, for example, three people at a station preparing one dish or ingredient. Mm, I think it really depends on the size of your kitchen. So at Blue Hill, we had like a pretty huge kitchen. There was uh, like 20 plus people working in our kitchen. So yeah. And there were four different lines. So there was Amuse, which was your, uh, they prepared your starters, Amuse brushes, uh, yep. Amuse brush. So it's like a, a little one biters that you have at the start of your meal. So there, there's usually like four or five people there. The interns are usually there, especially. And then there's one chef de party and a sous chef overlooking that maybe. And then there, yep. there's also garmonje, which is like your cold cuts and your veggies and your salad dishes. Um, they all come from mm -hmm. there. It's like a cold station. And then you move on to your two hot lines, which are the fish line and the meat line. Mm. And yep. they prepare the fish dishes and meat dishes. And they are, each station is run by like two or three chefs that are cooking basically. And one almost like overlooking and doing most of the plating. Mm. I see. So, so the, Oh, just two or three chefs that are cooking and plating. Mm. They're, they're cooking. That sounds mm, for, like for, not, not for too many each, Yeah, for each uh, station though. So if you have like two or three per station, uh, then you end up with like uh, 10 people, say, and then you have your CDPs overlooking the whole thing. There's another four more yep. and then you have a sous chef. So it ends up about 24 for Blue Hill, which is quite a large kitchen. Yeah. I see. And most, most would be about 10 or... Yeah, some small kitchens. Uh, I, I worked at a restaurant back home here in Malaysia and we only had like, at any one time in the kitchen, there were um, five, maybe seven, eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah about wow. yeah, seven, eight cooks. Yeah, so not not that many. It was quite a small kitchen. Mm. Okay. And and I, I suppose one more dessert station. Oh, yes, and a dessert station. <laughs> I can't believe I okay. forgot about that. But yeah, it's a dessert and, station too. So, so which, which was your favorite? So in the end, I only really worked at, because I, I, I was there for six months, I was working at, on the Amuse line for three months. Uh, and then I moved on to Garmanger for another three months. So basically, usually mm -hmm. people who 
uh, interns, they would only work on the amuse-bouche line um, be- just because of the nature of their internship. It's quite a short time. So if you teach them so many dishes, they they might not really pick it up that quickly and it will affect your whole service. So usually they stick to one station. But since I was there for six months, which is quite a long time, so they split my time in between the two. Uh, and yeah, for sure, I prefer the Gamache station more because you get to do a lot more interesting things, right? Um, you get to prepare uh, salad. So there was one salad that I particularly like um, plating. It was basically, uh, what was it called again? I think it was called a... It's basically a, a salad, but it was served on a big slate. And mm-hmm. it's like a, it, it's very seasonal. So depending on the different times of years, they might serve all different kinds of legumes, like five, six different kinds of legumes. Um, but when I was there, it was mainly brassicas. So you had like kale, mm-hmm. uh, broccoli, um, and cauliflowers, and basically cooked different ways. Uh, some fried, some deep fried, some uh, poached, and then you have like three or four different sources and you basically just like spray it like an artist on this canvas, on this big slate. And you basically just throw sources around. So that was really oh, fun. Oh, amazing. Slate. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that sounds really interesting. How did, how did they have a fish and meat station if vegetables are the key Wait, sorry, ingredient? Wait, so can, can you repeat that? You said that vegetables are the key ingredient and... Uh, so how does that fit into the whole concept of having a fish and meat station? Ah, right, right, right. So um, Chef Dan had, has this vision of like the third plate, right? Uh, and obviously like he's not exactly there yet. Uh, so although a lot of your meals are to do with vegetables, especially towards the start of the meal, a lot of people still feel like uh, they might want fish or meat, right? So there are certain dishes that um, centers on a fish dish or a meat dish, all done pretty sustainably, of course, uh, all, all red pretty sustainably. And basically, um, he tries to incorporate more vegetables and herbs in it as well to to make mm-hmm. it shine or so. So there were, let's say for, um, uh, for so they had like a foie gras, right? Mm-hmm which is quite a premium ingredient that people will often see like, oh, it's a quite an unethical uh, way of uh, force-feeding uh, goose to harvest their liver. And people just don't like the idea of that. But what Chef Dan uh, did there was um, he basically, because uh, Blue Hill is connected to uh, a farm, basically Stone Barns, uh, the Stone Barn Centre and the surrounding farms. Mm-hmm. So then we had a really close relationship with the farmers there. And he tried this experiment where he tried to make foie gras without the force feeding. So, yeah. mm, so basically, what he did was, was pretty interesting. So he, uh, the, all these... Uh, all these geese, right, they were allowed to roam in the wild and they were fed by just one farmer, one farm hand basically, that goes out at a set time every day um, and just feeds these geese. So they, they will only eat the things that she feeds them. Uh, and if it, was, I see. if it was anyone else, they just somehow they just would, wouldn't eat it because they are they, they can get quite aggressive as well. So there's only one person that they are pretty tame with, right? Uh, and towards the end of their uh, um, life cycle, basically, uh, they kind of played mind games with the with the keys. And basically, what what, what they did was they would uh, this farmhand would put the feed out for I don't know it was like half an hour, an hour, and then she will take it away instead of just leaving it there until it's gone, right? So once it, once she takes it away, the the keys would be like, oh. Um, we had like very little food today. Like, I guess the next day we should eat faster, right? Yeah. yeah. So then the next day, or, or this went on for like a, a week or several weeks. And basically the, the every time they left the food out there, the, the geese would just eat it up really, really quickly. And this kind of like enlarged their liver and, and they ate like more than they really should have. Yeah. So, but this was just all done pretty naturally. And in the end, it, it made a foie gras that was fattier than usual, although it wasn't like a foie gras standard yet. Um, but yeah. we served that and basically told the whole story behind it uh, and said it was 
it's kind of like a failed foie gras, but it was one of our experiments. And you can see that it was noticeably, noticeably richer than a regular liver. Mm. So it was, it was stuff I like see. that. There was like a whole story and a sustainability and a, a purpose behind it. all the fish and meat dishes that, that he served at the restaurant. Mm. Yeah. So it sounds like really a place where you get a chance to experiment with your ideas. Did you find that to be the case? Mm, so for, for Chef Dan and the Hitchers and the higher ups, definitely. But, but for me personally, I, because we are part of like a kitchen crew, right? So every day we were kind of doing up, uh, we had a set list of, uh, things to do that we had to uh, mm -hmm. get done before service. So then, It was, uh, it wasn't so much. We, we didn't have that much room to play around and, uh, mess with our creative side. Uh, it was more like, oh, do ABC every day. And during service, you just plate up these dishes when they're asked for. And that's it. I see. Yeah. So, so what does your day look like then? What did your day look like? Uh, so. The day today is when, so we only do dinner service, right? So dinner service starts at uh, five. I think it was five. Yeah. Eh, no, it might have been six. It might have been six. So <laughs> it's been a while. But basically when we went to the kitchen at 11 in the morning, we would uh, start prepping basically for five hours. So we start wow. prepping. Um, what, what do you mean by prepping? So everything is made fresh, right? So we had to do the sauces, uh, cook the, uh, any, any veggies or make any oils or garnishes and prepare, like wash all the leaves from the farm and mm. basically prepare all the ingredients ready to be cooked. And this took five hours, even though we had uh, 20 plus people in the kitchen. And there was always more to do. Your, your job is never ending. And you did it until four. Uh, I think it was four. And then you had a half an hour uh, lunch slash dinner break, basically. Um, wow. Yeah. Okay. But even during this 30-minute break, right, um, a lot of people will still be working. So the meals would be sort of eaten in a rush uh, within like, Some people could finish it, polish it off in like five minutes and then just went back to work. Uh, and I think, I think that also affected me a bit because that is why right now I eat super quickly. Un unconsciously, I'll just eat super fast at whatever meal I'm at uh, today, even like at home. But yeah, back then it was just, we just had to wolf our meal down and get back to working for another one or two hours before service started. So once service starts, the uh you speak uh, the front of house will speak to the guests and write up a menu and then you will basically just cook whatever you're you're asked to cook until 10 11 p.m uh mm -hmm. at which point the kitchen slowly gets shut down uh line by line and you slowly uh you, yeah. and then you start to clean and the cleaning will take two or three hours every night mm two three hours wow yeah so okay. because you are basically But, cleaning every surface uh cleaning all the stoves um yeah mm -hmm. and putting things back in their places and arranging them nicely oh, it yeah. sounds extremely busy and extremely manic yeah and i find it strange how i find it strange how um these chefs who probably enjoy food the most don't have time to actually enjoy the food themselves because mm. they're eating in such a rushed way Yeah, so a lot of the, in the past, a lot of the restaurants, the way they structured all these meals, right, it was just like to make sure you don't die of hunger, right? So the, the <laughs> meals weren't particularly tasty, they weren't particularly high quality, but slowly there's a shift. And at Blue Hill, when I was there, fortunately, like the, the meals were, every day there was like an assigned person to prepare the, the certain meals, certain um, dishes. So I was mainly in charge of a lot of the salads every day. Uh, so we had yes. to make like a massive bowl of salad. Like I could carry the whole bowl in my, uh, with my two hands. And it's kind of like a, the size of like a, what do, you, what do you call it? A size of a car tire almost. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just this big bowl of salad that you have to make every day. Uh, and you had to make the dressing to go with it. And, but the dressing, ah, right. So the dressing is where we could, uh, 
explore our creative side, I guess. So we could throw whatever we wanted in it, basically. Mm. And I come see. up with like a, a special okay. dressing of the day. Uh, but yeah, the, yeah. the meals were pretty, were pretty good there because the people cooking it uh, were actually, the, the chefs were working on the line itself, right? Mm. So it was really tasty. Oh, as in the, the meals which you ate yourself was from the chef's cooking yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the, uh, every day, the, so, so previously, I think it was just done like very rushedly, but then, uh, in when I was there, or at least like the one year prior to when I was there, they shifted the system to a more, they, they changed it from staff meal to family meal. So it like, uh, injects like a sense of camaraderie there and made uh, put people in charge of uh, family meal and make them feel responsible for how the food tastes right so it ended up being really nice so there was like people who cooked gumbo curries uh, Mexican tacos even because uh, some of them came from Mexico so they cook really like homey stuff like, like not super fine mm-hmm. dining uh, meals but they tasted pretty phenomenal mm. That's that's really good to hear. And it's good that they are a bit of staff welfare as well. And uh, can you share that story when you took the entire kitchen down? Um, wait, wait, can, can you repeat that again? So that so I know that's a, that's a story and I want to say that, yeah, was it the time when you took the entire kitchen down? Uh, what what happened there? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, funny story, but it will probably... <laughs> uh, so basically, um, what was it? So every Sunday, we we had service on Sunday, right? Basically, and but then they try to make Sunday special, uh, and someone would be in charge of making smoothies every Sunday, and um, they you, there's basically a sign up sheet. So I was like, oh yeah, I love to make smoothies. So then I signed up for one of the weeks, and then I thought like, oh, I'll make mango lassi which is yeah some, something that I really enjoy uh, at all these uh, Indian restaurants in Malaysia. And you don't really see it in the US. So I was like, oh, if they have mangoes and uh, if they have uh, yogurt and whatnot, I could just like whip it up pretty quickly. So uh, <laughs> so then on the day itself, uh, oh, so the night before I had like a lot of mangoes. I had like probably like, 10 mangoes, uh, and then I had my yogurt, everything ready, and I kept it uh, in a safe place, right? But then the next day when I came in, I found out that some of the mangoes were missing. So I en- ended up with like three, four mangoes, which was clearly uh-huh. not enough for a mango lassi, right? So for to, to serve like 50 people, because this was including the front of house as well. Uh, yeah. So it was clearly not enough. And... I had to go around the kitchen uh, scrounging for ingredients, what else I could use that uh, tasted like a tropical fruit, right? Uh, And basically, they had uh, in the upstairs kitchen, basically, it's like a, uh, it's almost like a different department, but basically, they had these like cold chillers upstairs, uh, cold freezers, and there was uh, this uh, pawpaw ice cream. Uh, pawpaw is kind of like a papaya, right? But uh, yeah, and they they call it pawpaw in Latin America, South America, I think. Um, so there was this pawpaw ice cream, and I th- I I have no idea how long it's been there, and but I just took it. So I asked for permission, like whether I can use this, right? Uh, because it seems like it's been there for a while. So I I just took it and threw threw it in the blender and blended it up into the mango lassi, uh, and then just served it to everyone. And it tasted great. It actually really tasted great. So some people went back for like <laughs> three, <laughs> three, four cups. So I was like, oh, I was feeling pretty proud of myself. Um, and then an hour, two hours later, uh, the head chef came to me uh, while I was busy like prepping for stuff, right? Because right, right now I'm behind because I was preparing this smoothie. So I'm behind on my like daily prep. So he came to me. It was like, John, you try to poison the, the kitchen crew? <laughs> then I was like... <laughs> So I was like, what? <laughs> what? What are you talking about? So then he, he, he started telling me that, oh, people are falling sick. They're going to the toilet. They're like throwing up. And I was just, I, I don't know, just like a wave of emotion um, just washed over me. right? And I, I don't know, I almost like teared up. So I started tearing up and had to like take a breather outside. I was like, what the hell did I do? I have no idea what I did wrong, right? Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> so it could have been the yogurt, but uh, I really suspect it was the pop ice cream that I didn't really know how it was was left there for how long. So I suspect it was that. But then, yeah, it was really too late to do anything, right? So some people uh, had to be like sent home. <laughs> and oh, it basically affected the, the service for the whole day, right? So the kitchen was really manic, especially manic that day. Um, and I felt terrible the whole day. Uh, wasn't really in the right mindset to work, but that had to kind of push on. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was looking back. It was a it's a funny story to tell, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, I I'm pretty sure I I I didn't do anything consciously. I didn't contaminate consciously contaminate the the lassi. But yeah, probably probably the. The purple ice cream that I just took, yeah, and and so so people are quite forgiving, it seems. Yeah, so so the thing is, like, not everyone had it. Probably those with like a weaker stomach uh, had a, a, a bad stomach ache, but yeah, some of them. There was this guy Jared who went back for like three, four cups. He, nothing. He was like so gung ho throughout the whole service as he usually is. He's like always like top performer in the kitchen every night, uh, and really look up to him. But yeah, he just down so many glasses and nothing happened to him so i am not sure what happened then hmm. and where did the mangoes go oh so so i i added the mangoes into the into the smoothie as well so it was mango no, uh, there was as in some some somebody clearly stolen some oh, mangoes yeah, which is i think what... like someone probably took it to to eat <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> right yeah. okay so what did you learn from your time in blue hill I learned <laughs> quite a few things actually, but I would say, yeah, uh, okay, three three things. I think the first thing was how to cook, how to really actually cook. Because in culinary school, yes, you learn um, techniques and you learn the basics of cooking, but it's really until you work in a kitchen and a really hectic kitchen where that you're truly appreciate how your food is cooked and learn how to mm. cook in a kitchen, right? Uh, rather than cook in a very controlled environment where all the ingredients are given to you every day and nothing bad ever happens. Um, mm-hmm. But in an actual kitchen, you know, if you mess up something, uh, you just run off ingredients and you, you have to salvage it somehow, right? So you really, really learn the... Uh, how, how to hustle and cook in the kitchen, basically. Um, and the second big thing, it, I guess, is I, I learned that I didn't want to work in the kitchen for the rest of my life, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it was it was really, really tough work. And I didn't, I couldn't see myself, you know, slaving it out for another 10, 15, 20 years in a commercial kitchen like that. Um, but... I really appreciate the chefs there and they really taught me a lot of things, but then it also kind of crystallized in my mind that this is not a career path that I want to go down. So that's where I shifted onto writing and whatnot. Um, but also the third thing was that, um, yeah, it really, it really taught me the uh, value of, um, kindness almost. It's really weird, but okay. yeah, but basically, um, yeah. in the kitchen. So, Kitchens are really hectic and uh, tempers can flare, right? Uh, and tempers did flare a lot in that kitchen. And I saw like the bad side of a lot of people uh, over like over the six months that I was there. Um, to, to be fair, like not everyone is is can can have a mean side, right? Uh, but there mm-hmm. were a few like almost like bad eggs in there um, that really almost like spoiled the experience for me. But to to be fair to them, um, the kitchen is a is a really stressful environment, uh, yeah. and sometimes you do things that you might regret later. Um, but I've seen some people in there. On on the flip side, I've seen people in there who always approached uh, all these tense situations with um, a high level of kindness, of empathy, and I really really appreciated that. So that was one of the biggest takeaways, I guess, uh, from my experience there. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it cuts across professions because I was speaking to other doctors and to some lawyers as well. And these high pressure professions where, you know, when the going gets tough, 
you see people who either flip and and get really angry and and snappy at people or you see and you respect so much more the people who even in the face of really high pressure can keep their cool be kind to other people and to be positive Mm. yeah so can completely agree and see where you're coming from yeah so you said that uh, you it crystallized in your mind that this is not the correct path for you how did you end up transitioning to blogging then (laughs) so basically Actually, I had the blog when I was in Cambridge. I'm yeah, not sure tea if you and remember, toffee. Right? Yeah, tea yeah. and toffee. Yeah, I, 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 toffee and tea. Toffee and tea. Yes. Yeah, it was called toffee and tea before, and <laughs> was wasn't a great name to be honest. So it starts off there, and I did it. Wrote on and off, uh, developed recipes. Just basically, it was for my own enjoyment, and <laughs> uh, I was writing um, in it for two three years. Uh, but then when I did culinary school, went over to the US, I kind of dropped the ball on it because I just had no time. So I stopped doing it. But then after I left Blue Hill, I found myself like, oh, I I had some extra time. So then I started up the blog again and did more writing. But at the same Mm -hmm. time, during that time as well, um, I was really into this website, uh, Food52. Oh yeah, I've seen it. It looks really good. mm, So... It was at, at some point it was like almost like my, my dream to work there, work with the team there. Uh, so then I after my internship I visited or or like during the end of my internship with Blue Hill, I visited the uh, Food Thirty Two office in New York City. Um, and kind of helped them out in the kitchen for just like one, two days. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Alternative CV Podcast. As always, show notes as well as links to everything that we've talked about can be found on the website alternativecv.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or learned something from it, do consider sharing it with your friends. Also, please consider subscribing to this podcast from wherever you get your podcasts from. Most importantly though, please consider leaving a review as it helps other people discover this podcast via the iTunes algorithms. If you have any feedback about how I can improve or any suggestions about guests you'd like to see me interview on this show, do get in touch at hello at alternativecv.fm. See you next time.